You're listening to the Beginning of Wisdom podcast with Andrew Schumacher. Beginning of Wisdom seeks to engage in theology and apologetics in the sight of God. You can learn more at beginningwisdom.org. Um, if you're used to watching this live, uh, it's been a little while. Um, I am glad to see you, glad to be here. And um, just uh, circumstances didn't allow me to record this or to do this live, but I'm going to go ahead and basically record it live. Um, I'm not going to do any crazy editing or anything like that. So it's going to going to come at you just like it probably would if you're if you normally watch the replay. But I want to give you a little bit of update before I jump into it, um, uh, into the show today. Just, uh, you know, give you an update. Uh, things are going well. Uh, you may have noticed a little bit of different content on the channel recently. Um, that's just coming from a Bible study that I'm leading and uh, hope, you know, if, if you're watching that, that you're enjoying it. Uh, we're also going through Hebrews, so that's... Uh, that's been really fun. Um, now, for, for what we're going to do today, I, I do want to kind of, since it's been a little while, if, if you're new to the channel, you haven't really watched a whole lot of stuff or you're, you're not all the way up to speed, just want to give you kind of an update on what this series is. What are we working on right now? So um, this episode is part 14 in a series on Hebrew Roots Theology and the Gospel. And... It's, it was inspired, it was started, and there's a, the playlist on the YouTube channel with the whole series in it. The first two parts of that series are responding to a common error um, made by, a lot of, by some folks in the Hebrew Roots movement that attempts to equate the gospel and the law of Moses and just say that you know, that's essentially they're the same thing. And... Um, this is typified by uh, 119 Ministries in those videos. Um, and, but then that, you know, doing that response led to, hey, well, let's, let's do something on the gospel itself. But rather than a sort of systematic theology, you know, just what is the gospel? We'll go to a bunch of different texts and talk about it. How about if we do this... Um, you know, through the sort of more biblical theology way and start with a text and walk through it. And um, so we started out with the book of Galatians, did a series on that, followed by Romans, and now we're in Hebrews. And the reason I, I wanted to do that was to show something, you know, really, really quite powerful that... Uh, and it's it's especially true of Galatians, though it's it's definitely true in other places as well. Um, that the the Hebrew roots movement specifically, that folks in that movement don't have the ability to simply walk through the Bible and and just read what it says and 
and draw out the meaning from the text. What happens is, uh, especially when you, you know, Galatians, this is notorious. Um, you know, go look and, and, and if you have examples of this, I, I want you to leave them in the comments. But look for any Torah observant Hebrew roots type series, you know, on YouTube or, you know, on, you know, in, in written form, maybe if someone has written a blog series or, or anything like that. Or frankly, a book, anything. I, I'd be interested in, in checking it out. But um, on YouTube, I've, I've seen several in the past when I first did this and, saw, and, and just came across one this week. And what they do, what they always do, is say, we're going to talk about Galatians because everyone thinks Galatians you know, goes against our theology, which it does. It, it, it most clearly does. Um, so they say, we're going to talk about Galatians. So they start the series on Galatians, and then it takes forever to get to Galatians. Um, there's always so much stuff that they have to pack in the front of that thing to try to, to get, you know, to try to steer your thinking rather than just reading the text. Now, I, I'm all about, I'm all about biblical theology, which one of the aspects of that is to understand things like old, you know, especially in the New Testament. If there's stuff in the New Testament that's making a lot of, drawing a lot of stuff from the Old Testament, but it's not super obvious to a modern reader who, who's, who isn't steeped in the Old Testament, I'm all about bringing that kind of stuff out. Um, that that's never what's going on in those long intros to Galatians. They're always going to, they're always talking about things Paul said, you know, in Ephesians or, you know, in Acts or, or all these other places um, because they, they have to get your thinking going a certain way. And then as they start to talk about the text, it's, it's still like, okay, I know it says that here, but, but look over here, you know, look at what this says and let's, let's bring that in. And, and the, the hilarious thing about it is that those other sources that they're often drawing from were often written years, if not over a decade after Galatians. Galatians is, you know, by, you know, there's pretty good scholarly consensus. Galatians is one of the first books of the Bible to, to be written, period, um, right there at the beginning. And, and while certain people might have had some historical or, or, you know, some un understanding of, of events that may have occurred, um, they wouldn't have access to like Paul's later letters. Um, so it's, it's really quite, it's, it's backwards. You know, if you're looking at, at Galatians and you want to, and you want to look at Galatians and Ephesians together, realize Galatians was written first. So if anything in, you know, influences anything, you know, it should be the other way around. But Anyway, it, it's it's funny. Um, yeah, I, the one I found this week, uh, and it wasn't a, like a YouTuber or somebody, you know, making a series on, on Galatians. It was just a, uh, you know, a pastor of a Hebrew Roots church just preaching to his congregation. And in their church, they're doing, and, and I don't even know if they call it a church, but whatever, you know, in they're, they're going over this, the, this book in a series and it's it's you know two whole 
hour-long sermons that are supposed to be about Galatians that aren't about Galatians um, because they just can't walk through the text. They just can't do it. So we went ahead and did it. Um, it was fun. Did it with Romans. Now we're doing it with Hebrews um, because the gospel is something that's very powerful in these in these texts and the the things that the ways it relate that the gospel relates to all the the stuff related to Old Testament law, um, all that stuff is 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 very powerful, and it's especially powerful here in the book of Hebrews. So, um, already did two uh, parts to this. This is part three of the book of Hebrews that we'll be going through today, and uh, up till this point, we have already talked about. Uh, the beginning all the way up through uh, Hebrews 4.13. Um, so we'll be starting in 4.14 uh, here with this uh, with this series. So with that said, let's go ahead and just jump into it. Um, since this isn't live, you know, one thing I normally do, and I want to just make say this to you if this is your first time watching, uh, when I do this live, I also always um, make time at the end for questions uh, for the chat. So um, if you if you have questions or comments, obviously leave those in the comments, but um, realize that that if I'm able to do this live um, and you're able to, to catch it live, you can participate. And that's, uh, that's something that's open to anybody. And it's been been really fun to do that. So let's go ahead and jump into this text here. Uh, and we will start at the very next verse where we left off. Uh, Hebrews 4.14 says, Therefore, because we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is not able to sympathize with our weaknesses, but who has been tempted in all things in the same way without sin. Therefore, let us approach with confidence the throne of grace in order that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So, um, so the, the, to kind of catch up on what we just talked about in the previous section, because this is introducing a, somewhat introducing a new concept, not totally new. Uh, the writer of Hebrews is is really good at taking a, a simple concept or you know that he's going to flesh out later and introducing it much earlier um so the idea of jesus as our high priest has already been talked about uh in earlier chapters but um to remind you where we are in the text the 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 whole first part of chapter four and really most of chapter three is talking about faith, dis disobedience, and rest, and that um, by faith we have rest, and that when people, you know, the, the, those in the wilderness did not have faith, they, um, because they didn't have faith, they disobeyed, they didn't go into the land, and so they did not have rest, and they died in the wilderness. So, the this idea and, and the rest that is being talked about here in Hebrews is that is the ultimate it's the rest that uh, that we have now 
by faith in Christ, that we we rest from our works because we, you know, we're we're not we're not saved through those. Um, we we don't, you know, it's we trust in in Him. We have we we believe in Christ, and you know the way we know we have this rest is because throughout this entire section prior, um, it is over and over and over. Um, and this, this relates, this rest relates to the Sabbath because it says in, uh, you know, four, four, you know, for he has spoken somewhere about the seventh day in this way, God rested on the seventh day from all his works. So he, we've been talking about rest through this whole passage, but now it says God rested from on the seventh day, you know, it talks about the seventh day. So what does the author of Hebrews have to say about the seventh day as it relates to us, it says it goes on in verse six, it says, since therefore it remains for some to enter it. And the ones to whom the good news was proclaimed previously did not enter because of disobedience. Again, he ordains a certain day today, speaking by David after so long a time, just as he had said before today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. So the, the day that we're, we are to rest is today. We don't put off till tomorrow our, our faith in Christ we we you know we we have that uh, that command today and and it says there in, in verse 8 you know about Joshua if Joshua had caused them to rest he would not have spoken about another day after these things now the interesting thing about that and I didn't talk about this last time but Joshua did cause them to rest um, it, it said he, he after they did all their conquering it says god gave them rest on all sides it says god gave them rest but obviously this rest the rest is talking about here the rest that he just said is for today um he said you know joshua didn't give him give them that that was something that was still uh to come and so it says consequently a sabbath rest remains for the people of god so here's you know, I, I went over that in much more detail in the last episode of the series, so I'm not going to rehash all of it. But the reason I want to kind of get us in that frame of mind is because the text we're, we're covering uh, starting today, it it has changed somewhat what it's talking about, but it but it's it's in the same mode. So the the mode of the text before was, you know, there was there was stuff that happened and that in the Old Testament, that stuff is something we should learn from. It's a type. It's a shadow. It doesn't use this terminology, but but that is what's going on. It's a representative of the real thing that's to come, the real thing that's to come later in Christ. And so Joshua is a type of Christ. He, you know, brought people into the world, into the land. He, he ushered them in. It says he get you know that god gave them rest but but the rest that could come through joshua that that the author hebrew says isn't the rest that comes through christ uh so that it was it was a picture of that rest but the real rest is what what we have through christ so now we're going to talk more about christ but again the there's always this contrast going on between what the people in hebrew you know that the author of hebrews is writing to are, are being tempted, you know, away from where they're at, you know, um, in their, their faith and, and their, 
community in Christ, they're, they're being tempted to give that up and just go back to the way, you know, they grew up, you know, in the Jewish religion and all of that. And the author is saying, don't, don't do that. There's nothing for you there. Um, without Christ, you, you can't, you can't just, you know, leave, leave Christ behind. So there's, there's going to be a constant contrast. And in fact, that whole section about the rest is preceded by talking about how Jesus is greater than Moses at the beginning of chapter three. So that's the context. That's the actual context of the actual book <laughs> that we're talking about as we come into this section about Jesus as high priest. So, you know, what it says here, you know, Jesus is our high priest. Again, it, it was mentioned before, but now, you know, we're going to talk about it in more detail. Um, in this intro, you know, it's being in, you know, the earlier it was talked about, or actually in both, in both cases, it's talked about in relation to temptation. Here it says he was tempted in all things. It, it said something very similar the first time that it talked about him as, as our high priest. Um, and the author calls us to hold fast to our confession. You know, we who we are to continue in faith because Jesus ability to sympathize with our weakness. Now, remember the section we just read about unbelief, their unbelief caused them to doubt God's ability to do what he had promised. So they disobeyed. Likewise, we have to have faith in Jesus' ability to do as he promised and hold to our confession, our belief in him. And don't miss this, this important part here where it says, you know, we have a great, great high priest who has gone through the heavens. Um, again, this, this is mentioned quickly here, just like the high priest thing was mentioned earlier. Now, the going through the heavens part is, is mentioned briefly, and it's going to be expanded on down the road in the book. Um, but notice it it's immediately distinguishes him from every high priest defined, that's defined through the law. In the law, it's, it's the, the Levitical priesthood, the, you know, the sons of Aaron. They're the, they're the priests, and the high priest is, is one of them, starting with Aaron himself. So they didn't go through the heavens, though. You know, they went through, they went into the temple, which represented things in heaven. But they didn't, you know, Jesus actually passed through the heavens. Um, and he did so. This is something that, you know, we saw really all the way back to chapter one. You know, he, that he created all things, but then he came, you know, came down and, and, lowered himself all the way to our level, and then he was exalted all the way back to the throne of God. So he he's definitely passed through the heavens more than one time. Um, but what we're seeing here is, is he's able to sympathize with our weaknesses. He's gone, but he's also gone through the heavens. So he's, he's both, you know, with us, but he's also transcendent. All right. Chapter five, verse one it says, for every high priest... So we see it's, it's continuing this idea that it just started, and that's why we started there. For every high priest taken from among men is appointed on behalf of people in the things relating to God in order that he can offer both gifts and sacrifices on behalf of sins. 
being able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and led astray, since he himself also is surrounded by weakness, and because if it is because of it, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for sins for himself also as well as for the people. So here we see we're seeing the contrast between Jesus as high priest and these other high priests, um, the ones taken from among men um, are not, you know, they're not, they didn't pass through the heavens. Um, you know, they, they are, are weak as we are. They're surrounded by weakness and because of their own sin, they have to sacrifice, you know, for their own sins as well as for the people. And this is something Jesus did not have to do. Um, but again, that will come up again later, but, but we move on. Then verse 4, it says, And someone does not take for himself this honor, but is called by God, just as Aaron also was. Thus also Christ did not glorify himself to become a high, become high priest, but the, one who, but the one who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And that's something from mentioned back in, in chapter 1, I believe, uh, or maybe 2, early on. It just as also in another place, he says, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. So the so he, like the priests in, in the law, no one, you know, no, neither Jesus nor they takes this for themselves. They don't take on this role of high priest for themselves. It's it's given to them in in the. In, in the case of the Levitical priests, it's by birth, so they didn't choose it. In Jesus' case, it's by this statement from the Father, that you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek, which is a, a citation of Psalm 110. But there, of course, is a difference as well, um, because Jesus isn't made a priest the same way they are. Um, they're made priest by lineage. He's a made a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek, which is not um, not by lineage, and it's going to go into that in actually quite some detail. So uh, let's go ahead and keep keep going. So in verse seven it says, "Who in the days of his flesh offered up both prayers and supplications <clears throat> with loud crying and tears to the one who was able to save him from death, and he was heard as a result of his reverence." Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And being perfected, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. So, again, this is a further, further description of what's going on. Um, because he, and, and notice this is, this is, really important, um, especially related to a lot of, of other doctrines that, that are out there. Because it's because Jesus intercedes on our behalf that he saves us. Um, he's our high priest. That This is what the high priest does. Um, and the psalmist clearly states, according to the priesthood of Melchizedek. Now, uh, this this has been mentioned a couple times already. It, it'll 
this won't be the last time it's mentioned um, and it's going to be discussed you know in in greater detail um, it's important here though that when he's talking about this um, that this priesthood that Jesus holds was not established through the law of Moses this isn't you know some some will try to say oh well you know it's just these two different priesthoods and and yeah it's in technically the books of Moses but but it's, this is in Genesis this is there's nothing in the the Sinai covenant about a Melchizedek priesthood and this will be be even more you know clearly demonstrated later so it's it's nothing found in the law but also it's nothing new it's it's something that actually comes before the law at least the the priesthood itself though the uh, uh as we'll see the the priesthood you know the this promise you're a priest forever according to the order of melchizedek that comes after the law that comes later and uh, it's going to go into that in actually uh, specifically so uh, just continuing on, verse 11 uh, says, Concerning this, we have much to say, and it is difficult to explain since you have become sluggish in hearing. For indeed, although you ought to be teachers by this time, you have need of someone to teach you again the beginning elements of the oracles of God. And you have need of milk, not solid food. For everyone who partakes of milk is unacquainted with the message of righteousness because he's an infant. But solid food is for the mature because who because of practice have trained their faculties for the distinguishing of both good and evil. So here we come to the end of the, of chapter five and um, the author kind of uh, shifts gears here a little bit, um, kind of like we saw at the end of chapter four uh, and starts talking about again, about, you know, immaturity and, and this idea of milk and solid food and I think this is so because of this, we're, we're sort of laying aside for a moment uh, this the concepts around the priesthood, Melchizedek, all that stuff. Um, but that's important stuff to con to keep in mind as we go forward, because it's going to come up again. And some of the things that have been said will will come up again. But now now we've kind of shift gears. We're, we're talking about sort of immaturity. And I think there's a. There's some important things here to, to glean. Um, the, as you know, he talks about people being immature, they need simple milk. Um, but when you reflect on this book, this isn't, this isn't just a milk type book. Um, and I think that the author is, is pointing out that, that there's people just not ready to really think about everything that's coming, coming in this book. But uh, but he's he's basically trying to bring them up to speed to get into s some of this stuff and and when we when we look at it really close we we really see this um, he it does repeatedly go back and draw from foundations but then it goes somewhere that really other books in the New Testament don't go um, talks about de in detail contrast between the system that they had lived in and then the you know with the law. And now the work of Christ and, and in a way that that is really deeper than any other other book in the New Testament does. And so I think he, he's, you know, some people have read this 
passage and think, well, this, okay, so they're not ready for solid food, so he's not giving them solid food. This, the book of Hebrews is just milk. No, I, I disagree. I, I don't think that it is. Um, he doesn't say he's not going to discuss the, the stuff that's solid food, only that it would be difficult to explain. Um, and that's why I think this section is telling us a little, really a little what the whole book is doing. Um, it isn't just milk and it isn't just solid food. It's going back over some beginning elements in order to bring the reader up to speed and then going on and discussing a lot of the, the deeper stuff. So I think that's really what's what's going on here. Um, so moving into uh, chapter six, uh, there's definitely uh, some really famous stuff in this in this text, but it a lot of it you know continues to uh, build on on stuff we've we've discussed with with Melchizedek, and I, I think that are going to be really relevant when it comes to how we understand this book in in relation to, you know, Torah observance and, and all of that. So um, uh, 6, 1 through 3, we'll go ahead and read that. It says, therefore, leaving behind the elementary message about Christ. So there's some of your <laughs> evidence that he's not just talking about the elementary stuff. It says, therefore, leaving behind the elementary message about Christ, let us move on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and faith in God, teaching about baptism and laying on of hands and resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. So again, he's, he's talking about moving people on to, to maturity. And um, one thing I didn't, didn't mention, but I think it is somewhat just interesting is in this previous verse, verse 14 of the previous chapter, it talks about, maturity being distinguishing of good and evil it's for this reason that that i don't believe that in the garden the good the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that somehow the knowledge of good and evil itself was the reason why this was you know the the tree you couldn't eat um there's a you know because maturity is that and and wisdom is that um the wisdom literature proverbs Solomon asked for wisdom to discern good and evil. So it's a, it's a good thing to do so pretty much everywhere else. Why is it an issue in, in Genesis? And I think that, that, you know, there's, we can go in a lot of detail. I think what it's going on there is really that it's, um, it's about trying to, to get that, for ourselves rather than letting God just kind of teach us and bring us to maturity on his, his own schedule, um, rather just take the fruit, you know, take, take it now. But that's a conversation for another time. So let's move on in, in this text though. So we're talking about, let's move on to maturity. Let's talk about that stuff. So what does he talk about when, when he brings that up? Starting verse four, it says, for it is impossible concerning those who have once been enlightened um, and have tasted the heavenly gift and become sharers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the coming age and having fallen away to renew them again to repentance because they have crucified again for themselves the Son of God and held him up to contempt. For ground that drinks the rain that comes 
often upon it and brings forth vegetation usable for those people who, for whose sake it is also cultivated, shares a blessing from God. But if it produces thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to a curse whose end is for burning. All right. So this is probably one of the more famous passages in all of the book of Hebrews. Certainly, the if someone mentions Hebrews 6, uh, this is usually what they're talking about. And it's interesting, I think, because um, there's so much more in the passage. It, it's just people people just kind of grab this one little, what is it, four verses, five verses, and take it out and say, let's, let's look at this. Um, I think that's really interesting. <clears throat> so, so anyway, let's, let's talk about it. So obviously, uh, this is a big text that is often used to promote the idea that salvation can be gained and lost. Um, the argument often made is that such a warning makes no sense if it isn't possible to lose one's salvation. Now, uh, I, I think that one thing we need to remember is that this text, like the rest of it, it's all part of a greater argument being made by the whole book of Hebrews. And so if we, if we just lift this out of its context and, and start talking about it, we're almost certainly going to get it wrong. Um, now, Remember, the statement comes directly on the heels of the author introducing us to the idea um, that he wants us to, to move on to maturity to discern good and evil. Um, so the statement is defining us for, for us what good and evil are. Um, obviously not exhaustively, but it, in the context of this argument, it's the good thing is believing the evil thing is falling away. Remember what, what were chapter three and four about? It was about belief, you know, that, that they fell because of unbelief. Unbelief caused them to disobey, caused them to, to not enter into rest. So the, the, remember, within the context, what this is talking, it's talking about, it's talking about good and evil, in, you know, from what it just said in the previous verses. And, and that's, you know, good being remaining faithful, evil being falling away. Now, the question, of course, still, still remains, you know, does the description here of someone who has tasted the heavenly gift, shares of the Holy Spirit, does that mean that they're saved and that they've lost that salvation? Um, meaning, like, if somebody died, you know, they would go, they would go into glory in heaven or, you know, however you want to put it. But then later they fall away. And now if they die, they won't. Um, that's, that's kind of what's, what's being asked. Well, you know, with, with this issue, there are basically three camps. Um, there are, uh, those who believe that true salvation that brings eternal life, that, if you go to heaven, you're, you'll be with God, however you define that. I know there's lots of different, especially in the Hebrew Roots movement, there's lots of different ways people try to define all that. But, but be saved, that you can be saved. So if you die, you, you go to the good place, right? 
um, you go to you go to God. Um, that you can have that and then lose it. That's one camp. Um, and there are lots of people in this, much of the Hebrew roots movement, people believe this. And it, I've heard a lot of them talk about it that, you know, they'll, they'll try, you know, to deal with the stuff, the texts that talk about salvation not being of works and, and all that. They say, oh, well, yes, you can initially be saved. And that's just by belief. But in order to keep it, you have to keep Torah or else you'll, you'll, you'll lose it. Um, so they, there are a lot of people in the Hebrews movement that believe that. Roman Catholics also believe that you can have that salvation and commit a mortal sin and fall out of the state of grace. And then you're, you go to hell if you die. Um, and unless you go through the, the proper um, procedures of, of repentance and penance and all that stuff in, in the Catholic faith. And then full Arminians, full five point Arminians also, uh, believe that, uh, that you can lose your salvation. They wouldn't say, you know, a mortal sin does it or not keeping the Torah for them. It would be, you know, denying the faith that you can have salvation and then you can lose it. If you reject Christ and, and go away, then, then you're not saved anymore is what they would say. So there's, few different people who, who fall into that camp. Um, I think it's interesting. A lot of times Hebrew roots movement and Roman Catholics, they fall in the same camp on a, on a lot of theological issues, uh, for all the vitriol they, they throw at the Catholics. They, they certainly agree with them on a lot, uh, at least philosophically. So the second group, there are those who say salvation can't be lost and so no matter what a person says, does, or believes, if they at any point had faith in Christ, they're saved, period. It's eternal. You're, you're good. Now, um, it, the position, it really simply denies apostasy has any impact on salvation. Um, they, don't, they wouldn't deny that a person could profess faith and then later deny the faith. Uh, and they, they might even say that those are both legitimate you know that, that the profession was real and the the denial is real but since the profession was real they're saved it doesn't matter what they do that's 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 their position uh typically what the folks that believe this are in uh, a lot of the fundamentalist baptist sort of of camps that it's their interpretation of you know salvation being by faith alone and not of works that they they kind of go go down that that wrong path. Um, I obviously don't agree with them on that. Um, this this text, among many others, uh, completely re refutes that. Uh, I believe it. It. I think that now now the problem that you see, especially in the Hebrew roots movement, is a lot of them think, you know, they they think that these two are the only two options. These are the only two positions one can have that either. You, you believe that salvation can't be lost and therefore you can do whatever you want or salvation can be lost. But those are not the only two options out there. And so the thirdly, the third option is the Reformed or Calvinistic position, um, obviously which I hold. And it says that true salvation is a work of God from beginning to end. So there's no way for a person to really gain it and then lose it um, in, in, in an ultimate sense. If 
if you're saved, a whole lot goes with that. It means you're one of the elect that God chose before the foundation of the earth, and you will be saved. You're not going to fall away. Um, now, the Reformed position, though, contrary to what people in you know who, who believe that you can lose your salvation, contrary to what they think, it does not deny the reality of apostasy. Um, people really do fall away. And if they do and they don't repent and walk once again in the faith, they are truly lost. But they, and so they see these warnings as real. We, we see these warnings as real. So the, the question though is, you know, from God's position, you know, we, we, the fact is we simply acknowledge from God's position, nothing was gained and then lost. You know, the person who falls away ultimately, who is condemned ultimately, was never truly saved in the beginning. Um, and there's some text, there's some stuff we'll see as we move on through this text that, that will continue to bear that out. But, but we don't see things from their ultimate, from the ultimate position. We don't see things from God's position. We don't know who the elect are. We don't know um, any of that stuff. We that's that's God's business. So the fact is that God, we wouldn't know that that's any of that stuff's even true, except that God revealed it. And and other texts in the scriptures, even parts of Hebrews, allude to this this stuff. Um, as we saw, you know, early on was talking about angels. It says angels are servants for those who are going to be going to inherit salvation. Think about that. God sends the angels to for people who are going to inherit salvation in the future. It doesn't say for people who might or who have or you know it's it's they're the ones who will. Um I think that strongly uh you know testifies to the reality of predestination. Um so but that's again that's from God's position but the fact is that in the final analysis, the, everyone who's saved is, is going to be believers. You know, everyone who, you know, it, it talks, it, what have we seen so many times already in this book? You know, those who hold fast their confidence, right? All the way to the end. That's, you know, if, and it says, if you hold fast your confidence to the end, you know, then you are his house and, and things like that. The, the other language it uses. And the, the reformed person says, yes, absolutely. Um, if you hold fast to the end, everyone who, who is saved in the end will be someone who held fast to the end, every single one and every single person who fell away from the faith and denied Jesus will be condemned. Everyone, there aren't going to be people in heaven who were like, I'm glad I prayed that prayer when I was six. Cause then I totally ignored God and, and denied God completely but dodged a bullet on that one. No, there's not going to be people in heaven like that, nor are there going to be people in hell, you know, that, well, I guess the, the analogy doesn't really go the other way. Um, but there, but people don't just get saved and then, you know, and, and then just walk away and they're still saved, uh, you know, that kind of thing. So, so from our perspective, from the human level, we can't see, the ultimate. 
So, so all of these commands are real. We are not to fall away. If we fall away, we're lost. We're truly lost. Um, it, it ends up being proof we weren't saved if it ends up being what holds to the end. But, um, but that's, that's, uh, you know, really the, the crux of, of the matter. So that's, that's why, you know, I, I, I chuckle, you know, when someone who says, well, obviously it says you can lose your salvation. And if you couldn't, you know, and those Calvinists who think you can't, you know, they're wrong. It's like, well, you, you don't understand our, our position on this. You know, it's, it's the one, our position is the one that actually takes all of scripture into, you know, into account, uh, for, for this type of situation. But, um, so, and, and we're going to see as, as we move on into just the next few verses, we're going to see that, um, that there's, there's a distinction that this author even makes in order to, to, to draw out that there, there are, that yes, you know, if you fall, you know, falling away is a real thing. Um, it doesn't mean necess- it doesn't necessarily mean it. he doesn't say he doesn't like get into it too deeply, but you know, it, the warning is real. I, I guess I'll just, I'll leave it at that. Um, so let's, let's go on to verse nine because we're going to see some of the, some of this stuff actually continues to be, be brought up and, and you'll see how it, you know, just dovetails with, with what I've been saying. So verse nine says, but even if we are speaking in this way, dear friends, we are convinced of better things concerning you and belonging to salvation for God is not unjust. So as to forget your work and the love which you demonstrated for his name by having served the saints and continuing to serve them. And we desire each one of you to demonstrate the same diligence for the full assurance of your hope until the end, in order that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who inherit the promises of through faith and patience. So, so here's, here's one reason why I believe what, what I just explained. Look at this, this passage. So he just described the, remember what he said, he said, and he says, but even if we're speaking this way, we're speaking about, remember about good and evil, evil is falling away. And we're speaking this way about falling away and how, how dire that is. Um, a lot of times, in fact, I didn't even get to it because and a lot of people don't. But what's the actual message of these verses? The actual message is if you fall away, you know, it's everybody gets caught up on can you fall away? If you fall away, it says it's impossible to be brought back again to repentance. And I think that is a, a, a very powerful warning and something that should be taken into account. But, um, but, because of our focus for the theme of this whole series, it's, it's hard to, to hang out there. But notice that it said, you know, what, how did it describe before the falling away? How did it describe things? It says they've been enlightened, tasted the heavenly gift, become sharers of the Holy Spirit, tasted the good word of God and the powers of the coming age. That's an interesting description. It's all, these are all good things. But then, 
what is the contrast that is drawn in verse 9? It says, we are convinced of better things. Notice that word better. It's going to use that a lot in this book of Hebrews. We're convinced of better things concerning you and belonging to salvation. So all that other stuff doesn't necessarily belong to salvation. Better things, things concerning that we're convinced of concerning you. Notice he says, convinced. You know, it's we're, we're convinced of these things. It's not that we know these things or we, God has told us that you're, that you're definitely saved, but we're convinced that you are. Um, and what is, what are those, the, the, the better things that it's talking about? Some of those are, are mentioned here. It says your work and the love, which you demonstrated for his name by serving the saints, continuing notice that that's a word of, you know, continuing to serve them. It's not just tasted of the heavenly gift, right? You know, receive the word of God. No, you're, you're, doing stuff. Your faith is producing work and you are continuing to serve. And we desire each one of you to demonstrate the same diligence for the full assurance of your hope until the end. So notice this language of, again, persevering to the end, all that stuff, diligence. That's what accompanies, that's what belongs to salvation. Um, that's what accompanies salvation, as some translations put it. So, that's a huge difference, you know, between what, what was described before and, and now what we're talking about. So that's why, and again, that, that is a perfect description of how, you know, the reformed position on, on perseverance of the saints looks, you know, that when you're, you're talking about your dear friends in the faith, you're convinced of better things. You're convinced that they are saved because you see it in what they do. You see it, you see their works, you know, bearing that out. Um, they didn't just come and, and taste something and receive something and were part of that community and, and had great blessing and then, you know, fell away, then left. You know, for those, there's no hope. There's, there's no hope offered in, in Hebrews for, for those who do that. So, uh, and that's, again, that's, that's, this is all from our position as from our level, the human level, we, we can't see that other stuff. So, so for, for what it's worth. Yeah. I, I think that, um, there's no, there's no reason to, um, to think that, you know, the, what, what's often called the once saved, always saved, you know, perspective, which, you know, some people say Calvinists believe that and, and there's, there's sort of an element in which that's true. Obviously, we're talking about salvation, things belonging to salvation, so saved. So once you're saved, once you're actually saved, yes, you're always saved. So that's true <laughs> that, you know, Calvinists do believe that. But it's, it's not, there's, there's nuance to it that, that is often just totally ignored. And, and, and I understand it's, it's easier to ignore that and to talk about, something that's really more of a caricature of, of, uh, you know, good sound theology, like, you know, like that, that just says, Oh yeah, if you ever said a prayer, you know, then you're good. And it doesn't matter what you do or say, or believe the rest of your life. You're, you're just totally good. And, and that's just, 
sorry, it's, it's just not biblical. This is one of the passages that just utterly refutes that. All right, so let's go ahead and we're going to finish out the chapter uh, with uh, these last uh, last verses here in chapter six, and that is where we will will finish up the episode. Um, so uh, let's start there in verse thirteen. It says, for when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater to swear by, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will greatly bless you, and I will greatly multiply you. And so by persevering, he obtained the promise. For people swear by what is greater than themselves, and the oath for confirmation is the end of all dispute for them. In the same way, God, because he wanted to show even more to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeableness of his resolve, guaranteed it with an oath, in order that through two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge may have powerful encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us, which we have like an anchor of the soul, both firm and steadfast, and entering into the inside of the curtain where Jesus, the forerunner for us, entered, because he became a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. So, what's going on here at the end of this chapter? So, uh, again, we have just talked about the danger of falling away, but we're convinced of, of greater things for you belonging to salvation, because we see your perseverance. And so that's that's what's being said. And that we're we're kind of changing focus here now and looking at talking about Abraham. But notice there in verse 15, by persevering he obtained the promise that the the overall is hasn't changed. It's it's still hold fast um, in your faith. But um but now we're we're shifting gears and talking about some new things. And it says it's, it's focused here on the, the promise of God declared in an oath. And actually, we find two promises in, this, in this, uh, this passage. The first one's to Abraham, that God will, I will surely greatly bless you, I will multiply you. The second is the promise to Jesus that he would be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, uh, which, you know, found in Psalm 110. They're... they're um, uh, which it, it'll go into to more detail, but but that's uh, you know that's the other one. So it says God, you know, God is not able to lie. Now that should be obvious, but you know don't don't miss this mention of oaths. You know, God said it, but then He added an oath, and you know it's one of the ways that we'll see this direct link between the promise to Abraham and the new covenant in Christ. Um, there is a disconnection, and while while at the same time we see constant disconnection between the Mosaic Covenant and the work of Christ. So this is something we've talked about in this series before. Uh, back when in the book of Galatians, we talked about how um, it talks about how a, a covenant cannot, you know, once it's ratified, cannot be changed by some later covenant that comes along. 
um, it's, it's set. And then it, it equates that to the covenant with Abraham cannot, you know, the, the, the Sinai covenant covenant with Moses, the law came 400 year plus years after the promise to Abraham. So just like a, a new, you know, some new promise or new thing can't, you know, nullify a, a previously previous covenant. The Mosaic covenant can't nullify the, the Abrahamic covenant. And so they're obviously contrasted. They're different. Um, then in book of Romans, it, it again, uh, caught draws a distinction between the Abrahamic covenant and the Mosaic covenant. When it talks about the, the law coming, you know, it says, why, why then the law? And it talks about this law came in as a side issue because of sin. So it's, it's this sort of, you know, thing that came in, you know, and it's, it's still revelation. It's still, you know, God's word. But it it wasn't there from the beginning. It wasn't. It's not the original promise to Abraham. It's not, you know, just, you know, it's not really fleshing out anything specific to the nation or to the covenant with Abraham. <clears throat> it's it's something different. And Hebrews again does the same thing. Um, here we have, you know, the oath is what's related to. You know, what does it say there in verse 17? Same way God, because he wanted to show even more to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeableness of his resolve, guaranteed it with an oath. Hang on to that. We're not going to get to the, the, the full contrast yet uh, as it, you know, that comes in the next chapter. But, you know, we're going to see, we're going to start to see more contrast between Moses and Jesus and it's going to be related again to the oath. But, you know, again, just to kind of uh, wrap things up, I, I want to I want to wrap things up where this is 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 remind one thing is reminding us here again. It mentions Abraham persevering, obtaining the promise. There's a mention here of perseverance. and It comes right on the heels of what we just saw related to falling away. Many, especially in Hebrew Roots movement, teach you that you can lose your salvation by not keeping Torah sufficiently or faithfully. They teach that sections like the previous one prove it. But notice what is said of Abraham. He persevered and so obtained the promise. Does this mention as a means of, of obtaining mean that he could have gone the other way? Think about that. You know, a lot of them, they'll, they will, they'll point at this and say, see, it, it comes by persevering. So if you don't persevere, you won't get it. And, and with all of that, I do agree. But, but think about it. So for Abraham, yes, he persevered and he obeyed and, and he obtained the promise. Um, but could Abraham have failed to persevere? And if you think he could... Does that mean that God's promise could be nullified by, by Abraham? Um, God didn't give Abraham an if. He gave him commands, certainly. Commands related to the covenant, you know, commands to circumcise, all this stuff. Like he gave him commands, but he didn't tell him, if you do this, you know, this will happen. If you don't, it, 
Again, that's different from the Mosaic Covenant. In the Mosaic Covenant, it says, if you obey, these are the blessings. If you disobey, these are the curses. So there's there's definitely, you know, there's a difference here. But if, if yes, Abraham did obtain the promise by perseverance. But did he, but does that mean that he could have, by failing to persevere, nullified the promise, nullified the oath? Um, there was never, the fact is that, that when God made that promise to Abraham, there was no way. It, I mean, this, this text makes it as plain as it possibly can. Um, he wanted, God wanted to show to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeableness of his resolve. He guaranteed with an oath. Whose resolve? God's resolve. God guaranteed it with an oath in order that through two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge may have powerful encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. So, God has given these, you know, this oath, and it's unchangeable. It's, it's, it's just right there in the text. It's clear as day. It is unchangeable. And, it, you know, it's, it's one of those things, it's, it's like the Trinity, it's like, you know, a lot of things that in, in Calvinistic system, it's sort of a both, both and scenario. It's, it's both that we must persevere and that God's promise is irrevocable. Even, you know, even we cannot you know, cause it not to, to, to be fulfilled. If God made a promise, it will be fulfilled. So, you know, it's just, we have to look at it, you know, is it from God's perspective or our perspective that, that this text is speaking? And uh, I think that's the only way to, to really faithfully deal with all this stuff in these texts. Cause, cause you, you go the other routes, you run into, to huge problems. Um, when, when you get into a lot of the other texts and, and even in, in these texts, like the explanation is right there if, if you're willing to see it. So uh, with that, we'll go ahead and that will be the, the end for this episode. We, um, if you are interested in other stuff, like I said, if this is your first time catching anything on this channel, I've done tons of stuff uh, with the Hebrew Roots Movement. Uh, I've done a lot of stuff on the Trinity. Uh, those are kind of big areas that if you're looking at this this YouTube channel, you're going to see a lot of that. Um, but also uh, check out beginningwisdom.org as well. Lots of articles there on a few you know, a few other things, but, but tons of stuff there too. So, um, and if you have any questions, you know, like I said, this isn't a live, so I, I can't take any audience questions like I normally do. But definitely, you know, send me something um, there in the description. There's going to be links to, uh, you know, places where I can be found on social media. Uh, the ones that I uh, probably well, that I'll tell you this, the ones that I get uh, notifications from um, for sure right now um, are MeWe, where I have there's a group. There's a beginning of wisdom uh, group there on MeWe and on um uh, Twitter. Uh, if, if you send me a message on Twitter, I'll, I'll see that. 
um, a lot of, you know, and I'm also on Gab and Parler and, and other things. Uh, and I do check those. Uh, but I'll, if you if you're like, hey, I have a question. I want you to hear it you know, right now where I don't have to go check something. Those those two places at this moment. And, uh, you know, that's where places you can find me. So I hope that uh, this has been a blessing to you. And um, looking forward to seeing you next time, whenever that is. Uh, hopefully it'll be really soon. So thank you so much and, and God bless. Thank you for listening to the Beginning of Wisdom podcast. You can follow Andrew Schumacher and the ministry at beginningwisdom.org where you can find links to the YouTube channel and follow on social media. Sign up for email alerts to never miss new content. Please like, share, and rate the episode if it has blessed you. God bless and always be ready.